Okay. Coming back. All right. So approaching rewards, and interestingly, I was just feeling almost distracted. I felt so flooded by it. Gratitude for you. Honestly, just so many people, you come back on time, you're here, you're interested, you haven't left yet, you know. Thank you. And that's an example of looking for little opportunities to feel grateful, uh, to feel thankful or appreciative, or overlapping gratitude, little opportunities to have a sense of gladness, you know, from the small pleasures of ordinary life, uh, or a sense of accomplishing or completing things, or ongoing conditions that make you feel happy, make you feel basically good. Maybe there's anxiety, maybe there's physical pain alongside it, but the gladness is authentic. The gratitude is actually authentic. So anyway, the approaching reward system. And one thing about that to appreciate, one of the major things I think, is just a sense of fullness of life itself. You know, if we open our eyes without uh, needing to be a poet necessarily, we can see so many good things around us. Uh, we can have so many opportunities for gratitude. One thing you may know already, but when I had learned about it, I completely geeked out about it, and I'm still there, is that every atom in the universe that's bigger than helium was built inside an exploding star, basically, or a star altogether. In other words, the early universe, 13.7 .7 billion years ago, had only hydrogen with a little helium. These are small atoms. There's just one proton, one electron, and hydrogen, etc. Right now, take a breath. You're breathing stardust. The oxygen, the nitrogen, the calcium and carbon dioxide, or the carbon and carbon dioxide, the iron in our blood, you know, the gold in my wedding ring, all of that. I'll look at my ring sometimes and go, Whoa, stardust, you know, blown up. We literally are stardust. That's pretty trippy. It's yeah. to me an opportunity for thankfulness and, and gratitude. Anyway. So it doesn't mean you don't see the difficult things. It just means that we're looking for opportunities where there are good facts that are the natural occasion for healthy uh, gladness or gratitude. Another one, just to finish on this point and see what you think about it, then we'll move on to the attaching system. The Buddha advises us Find gladness in your goodness. In other words, respect your own efforts or your own development. I think acknowledging growth without being uppity about it or big-headed or e egotistical, etc., but genuinely recognizing progress on the path is motivating and it's a healthy reward. It passes the good friend test. In other words, if we would wish it for our friend, if it would be virtuous to wish it for our friend, it would be loving and kind and just, well, it would be equally virtuous to wish it for ourselves. The golden rule cuts both ways. You know, do unto yourself as you would do unto others. All right? So recognizing the goodness in oneself, feeling gladness in one's goodness, is another primary basis for approaching reward experiences. Okay. Any comments or questions about ways to gradually reduce deficit and disturbance states about rewards and internalize a growing sense of contentment and fullness and abundance and accomplishment and success and release increasingly feelings of frustration or disappointment? That's a very small subject. Any questions? Right. Want to stand up if you're willing or a big voice? Sure. I'm not sure if it's not really a question. I just Comment. Comments are good, yeah. Have a look at what you were saying about your story about, you know, your vitamin C and that was really cultivating when someone was good to you and inclusive. Yes. What happens if my, they're not? My issue with that is what if they're not yep. and you're basing you are positive on, on yes. the environment. Yes. It's a great question in two, in two ways. So one of the sources of a good experience 
are good, 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 good events or conditions outside us. Other people are smile. Someone moves to the side so you can move ahead uh, in traffic. Um, someone is caring or loving or friendly, right? Or other forms of good external events. That's a basis for a good experience, okay? And I think often we miss opportunities to let those good facts, they are existent, objectively existent facts, but we don't notice them, or if we notice them, we don't turn them into a good experience, or if we turn it into a good experience, we don't register it. We don't help it sink in. So for sure, you know, I think of it as a little bit as harvesting. You know, harvest the good facts to the extent that they exist. Now sometimes good facts that we wished would exist don't exist, right? Um, <clears throat> we live in a dangerous neighborhood. We're not safe. Or we've, uh, we're being discriminated against. We've hit a glass ceiling in our career for one way or another. And uh, we're not able to approach those rewards. Or we would like to have a soulmate, a deep love partner, and it's just not happening in our life right now. What do we do then? Um, then I think we be with what's there, including our sorrow or our disappointment, or our uneasiness or what have you that arises. We do what we can to improve the world outside us. We do what we can to release the negative. But at some point, if you want, and often it's really useful to do this, we try to do the best we can to have at least a slice of the pie. My mother, no longer alive, very, very loving, big personality, and she expressed her love by helping others improve themselves. How many of you have had a similar parent, or are such a parent? I fall into that trap myself as such a parent. Uh, thank goodness for my wife, kind of balances us out. But anyway, um, it was pretty annoying. You know? And also you know, wounding in some ways, to be in a fault-finding home, basically. Because uh, you have to find fault in order to improve people, uh, in some sense, if you have to find what's missing. So after a while, though, somewhere in my 20s, I think, maybe even 30s, honestly, I realized that this wasn't good for me to react to my mother's personality. And I started ignoring her personality. And I started going for the slice of the pie in her, behind her personality, really far behind on some days, uh, where she just loved me unconditionally and always had. And I could feel it in her. And even when I couldn't feel it, I just, rem I just imagined it. Because I knew in some ways it was true, probably true. And it helped me to register it. See what I mean? A slice of the pie. It wasn't the whole pie, but it was a slice of the pie. Any port in a storm. So we do what we can. It's not perfect. I'm not trying to minimize, much as we would wish for our friend to find the love of her life, a really good person, let's say, uh, or we would wish for our friend some other important positive experience. Perfectly legitimate to wish that for ourselves. But meanwhile, you know, I'm, my supervisor, when I became a as when I was an intern, said the most important word in his view in the English language was meanwhile. <laughs> meanwhile. What are we doing meanwhile? You know what's the line, John Lennon, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans, yeah. something like that. Um, so, yeah, and this idea that we can go after the fraction of the positive experience that is available to us, even if we can't have the whole thing, and we can experience that fraction of the food our soul needs, through other sources or in other ways, including just imagining for it for ourselves, like bringing up memories of feeling loved or feeling loving ourselves, that fact is wonderful because it gives us so many opportunities to fill the hole in our heart, even if the environment is not being very obliging. Yeah. I should add, too, that implicitly this stance of being an ally to ourselves, as the Buddha said on his deathbed, be a light unto yourself. Take responsibility yourselves, you know, for your own growth. If we try to take in the good, if we practice with our mind, either being with it or letting it go or letting in the positive, implicit in that are a lot of wonderful benefits because we're being active rather than helpless and we're treating ourselves like we matter, which is especially important if we grew up or had an adulthood in which we didn't feel like we mattered enough to others.
See that bonus benefit that's implicit? That's great. So if I could, I'd like to segue in the interest of time to the other uh, major system we have. I'm moving along fairly quickly, obviously. There's a lot we could say about each one. Um, and that is the attaching system. So now I'm going to do a little experiment with you in a moment. I'm going to show you an image. Notice what happens in your body-mind as I show you this image. There are four monkeys in this picture. <laughs> and you heard people say, oh, it's sweet, and the, the voice tones. We're such social animals, right? And we're primates. These are cousins. Okay? And you can see the fourth monkey kind of in the middle, down low, little one, eyes looking out, the two little dark eyes looking out. Right? And if you think about it, that experience that we had, it was just so easy, just was kind of there and natural, um, really speaks to what loving social creatures we are. The experience of feeling cared about is incredibly important. Uh, as we evolved, um, the survival benefits of love, broadly defined, were the primary driver of the evolution of the brain for the last several million years. The brain has tripled in volume in just the last several million years since our ancestors began manufacturing stone tools. They did this with a brain about a third our size. And a lot, arguably even the majority, of the build-out, this tripling in volume of the brain, is dedicated to social abilities. Language, cooperative planning, empathy, altruism, uh, moral thinking, uh, being able to share states of mind, being, to, being able to tune in in terms of theory of mind into the ideas and perspectives and values of others. Uh, wow, that's our brain. So how does it help us to take in this high-value experience again and again of feeling cared about in some flavor or another? It doesn't have to be the whole pie. But the slice is real, okay? With my mother, uh, I started thinking of her personality as like a bunch of vines on a latticework, and I saw through the vines to the warm fire of her love for me, and I started just ignoring the vines. She'd say this stuff, and it'd be like, mm -hmm. and I just kind of <laughs> zero in, eyes on the prize, you know, zero in. So I'm not getting the whole pie, but I got a slice that really made a difference to me. And also led me to treat her a lot better over time. So um, one is, is that it helps to appreciate that it's good for others if we are kind to ourselves. As Bertrand Russell said, good people are happy people, not because being happy makes you good, but because being, not because being good makes you happy, but because being happy makes you good. In other words, when our own cup runneth over, we're more inclined to be patient, loving, forbearing toward others, as we've all probably experienced. So if it's hard for you to be loving toward yourselves, toward yourself, be, in, be clear that the more I build myself up over here, the more able I am to be generous to them over there. In the last bullet, I'll just flag that. If you're in a challenging situation, you know, challenges hit you and you want to stay in the green zone, you want to be able to stay basically responsive rather than reactive to this real challenge, it can help in the moment to call up a sense of inner allies, people who are with you, who love you, who care for you. And so I propose to do a little practice to that effect. So, to create a bit of a frame for this, in transactional analysis back in the 70s and 60s, you know, games people play, Eric Byrne, uh, the idea was that inside us you could kind of divide the psyche into three parts, the inner child, the nurturing parent, and the critical parent. A modern update in the trauma literature is victim, perpetrator, rescuer. It's another way of thinking about it, or maybe a more general way of putting it, I think of it as sort of like beleaguered self, 
attacker, protector. Here's the problem. Most of us have a very powerfully internalized sense of an inner attacker, a critic, a pusher, a driver, a nagging voice of falling short, uh, conditional worth, and so forth. And unfortunately, we have a very feeble, often, a very feeble inner nurturer, inner protective, who's kind of helplessly sputtering in the corner. Oh, be nice. Don't, don't hurt little Ricky. You know. <laughs> See what I mean? So, building up that inner nurturer, that inner protector. I think of it as sort of the, uh, like a committee, you know, the cheerle inner cheer cheerleaders. Uh, they're encouraging us, they're giving us heart. Uh, that's the root of the word, to encourage, to give heart to. Um, they're helping us see things uh, in a fuller way. Uh, who's on your inner caring committee? You know, my inner caring committee has like the, you know, fairy godmother and Sleeping Beauty. It also has some rock climbing guides I've had. Suck it up, Rick, and just climb. You know, there's a place for that too, all right? A little goes a long way, but there's a place for that. Who's on your caring committee? Who are your inner allies? And how can you take in experiences of them and build them up inside you? To keep at bay the inner critics, as well as keep at bay you know, others who are hassling or criticizing you unfairly. Okay, do you want to try this? Just for fun. This is, you can get a little playful with this one. I'll take you through this practice here. So for a few minutes, we're gonna play around with building up the sense of an inner uh, sense of allies, those who are with you, all right? So you might for begin with thinking about someone as we've done before, just to kind of warm it up, that you know is on your side. It may not be perfect, they may express being on your side with advice you don't really like or whatever, but you know they care about you. They, they got your back in their own way. And if no one in your life is like that these days, perhaps the past, or if need be, honestly, imagine such a being. It's okay to imagine such a being, even if you know that they don't exist. Because you're trying to cultivate an experience inside yourself of feeling cared about. If you like, you can almost imagine perhaps a row of chairs or maybe a dinner table people are sitting around or just a kind of space where there are different energies in the space. Whatever is your thing. And see if you can start to populate it with beings. Maybe some concretely in your life. Maybe others you don't quite know who still wish you well. Maybe some of them are spiritual entities, if that's meaningful to you. Maybe some have different qualities. Maybe some are more just kind of like the fairy godmother, whereas others are the loving but firm coach. Start filling out your caring committee inside your own mind. It's okay if they're just one person on it, or even two or three or four. Could be a group of people.
if you can, try to get a sense of different kinds of advocacy for you or encouragement for you or nurturance for you from these different beings or energies inside your mind. Maybe one is just really nurturing and loving unconditionally. Maybe a second one is more like a coach who kind of challenges you some but tells you you can do it. Maybe another part is like a good problem solver who helps you figure things out and is confident that if you just keep plugging, you can figure things out. Maybe another one is kind of sympathetic and has a, like a dark humor that just sympathizes with the pain. And maybe one of these beings is an East Coast kind of being, and another one is a West Coast kind of being. Maybe one is masculine, one is feminine. It's okay. Try to notice the different flavors of support for you from these internalized voices or energies inside you. And then see if you can start taking in, receiving a sense of what's being given to you. As if you're receiving the nurturance or receiving the encouragement, receiving the problem solving, receiving the camaraderie. And then, as a kind of bonus, on the basis of whatever felt sense of being supported and allied with that you've got here, imagine coming from this place out into your life, maybe even tonight or the coming week. you had a deeply internalized sense of being loved and valued and encouraged, how could you live from there more fully into your life? So how was that for you, to play around with that, that idea of beginning to build up this inner nurturer to balance the inner attacker? Any comment or question about that? Yeah, right there. Yes. Yeah, that's right. 
One nice thing to realize about that, and again, some things, again, in life in general. Oh, sorry, he said he wants the caring committee all the time. You know, yeah. And sometimes we realize that certain, we're not going to do all these practices, but if we find one that we think at least today, if not this month, is really useful, or maybe it's an ongoing one to keep building up, uh, you know, like maybe you find one of those today. Maybe for you it's feeling all right right now. Or for another person, it could be this idea of a caring committee. Or for other people, it might be just registering again and again, goals attained, goals attained, goals attained, you know, a hundred times over each day. Whatever you find, yeah, that could be a good one for you. But you're right. You know, I, I actually visualize it myself. Uh, Mike Singletary, somehow, I don't know why, former coach of the 49ers, maybe not the world's best coach, but he just is for me an exemplar of, you know, like strong love, you know. Uh, and I also have, Fauna, forget Flora, forget her, or Meriwether, the plump one, you know, the Sleeping Beauty, Fairy Godmother type. And I got a couple others in there. My wife's definitely in there. I've got a few buddies in there. You know, what's on your caring committee? I think about Dante going into hell. He brought with him the angel Virgil. You know, like in AA they say, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood, never go in alone. Da -da. We, want, we need to have in, inner allies. Very important. Right. Okay, another comment or question? Okay. Great. Okay, first you, then you, then I'll move on to the deep end of the pool. I just felt like if I, with that caring committee, I could really be there for people. Oh, thank you. She said with this caring committee, feeling cared about, cared about herself, she could really be there for others. Supporting that point as we fill up our own cup, yes, it's easier to be for others. And if, and if it's hard for many people, statistically, certainly, obviously, to generalize women who are socialized to care for others first and foremost, it can help to appreciate that I'll have more caring for you if I build this up for myself. More caring for you is not the only reason to build this up for myself, but it's a good way sometimes for some people to be motivated to build it up over here. Yeah, that's right. Okay, one more person right there. Mm. <laughs> right, right. That's very good. So great. You were creative and you took care of yourself. And, you know, uh, one other thing, too, is sometimes it can help to imagine like a part of a person. You know, like I did with my mom, I kind of just ignored this advice giving persona and I went to this huge warm heart, you know. So maybe that was a way to play around. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've even done things with people. This is intervening out in the world, the hell that is other people. But I've, 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 I've said things to people sometimes, like, if you were only your entirely loving self, what would you say right now? <laughs> but, you know, it's a little risky. But anyway, it worked okay. It worked okay. All right. Okay. Okay, so caring, love, really important to let it sink in, right? Caring committee. Okay, good. Got about 20 more minutes. Going to do one more person. Oh, I just, my, my comment was sort of similar to whoever was speaking over here, but um, I get into these sort of like, um, my daughter will trigger me and I'll trigger her, and yeah. then we're all very frustrated. And But she also is like sweet and loving, and so I was sort of like placing her in the caring committee because when she's not the one upsetting me and someone else is, one comforting me. Yeah. Um, but in other moments, she's the one making me crazy. So I was sort of moving her back and forth. That's good. That works. That <laughs> but works. I found that um, it seemed like a useful practice, like the next time we're in sort of a power struggle, the idea yeah. of remembering that she's also on my caring committee could help me yeah. sort of move past that moment. Yes. That struggle. Because it gets very negative. I think that's great. I, so I, for me, there are kind of two truths that sit side by side on this one. On the one hand, it's healthy for us as social animals. Just like we take in oxygen, we take in food, we take in water, we need to take in love. Right? It's deeply important. Uh, loneliness, experienced loneliness, not someone who's quite introverted and is perfectly fine, but someone who feels lonely, is a serious risk factor for physical illness in a shorter lifespan. Loneliness. We're, you know, it's not good for us. So, it's important 
pardon me, to take in these experiences of being cared about on the one hand. Yet on the other hand, to quote this just one thing practice that I'm kind of mentally going to working on. Ready? Relax. You're going to be criticized. <laughs> in other words, it's inevitable. You know, as Shanti Deva quoted earlier, the great, this great Tibetan uh, teacher around, I think, the fifth century or so, uh, common era, said, you know, uh, if I am being praised, I know that there will be those who criticize me. So why get so excited about being praised? On the other hand, while being criticized, I know there are those who will praise me. Why get so excited or reactive to being criticized? And, you know, criticism or variations on it, like insufficient, being, you know, damned with faint praise, people not appreciating how great, you know, your whatever it is is, or they go, oh yeah, oh yeah, that was nice dinner, mom, whatever. You know, right? It's going to happen. And in a weird kind of way, just kind of surrendering to the inevitability of imperfection, the third Zen patriarch has this great line in this classic teaching that starts out, the great way is easy for one with no preferences. That's typically how it's translated, you know. And he, a little bit later on, he has this amazingly provocative line. He says, enlightenment is no anxiety about imperfection. Wow. No anxiety about imperfection. You know, there are imperfections. People will criticize us. People will not recognize our wonderfulness. You know, people will not attune perfectly. Uh, it's going to happen. Relax. You're going to be criticized. So it's this kind of weird combination. And actually what enables us to relax, you're going to be criticized, is to have a deeply internalized felt sense of honestly being loved enough. Be nice to be loved more, be nice to be never criticized for the rest of the life. Unfairly criticized is what I'm talking about. But it's probably going to happen. You know? Okay. All right, the deep end of the pool. So to go all the way out to the deeper Buddhist take on um, equanimity, the Buddha is really talking about a radical, fundamental quality of not being disturbed in any way, shape, or form by what comes through the mind. I think that experiencing 10,000 times over that core needs are in fact met, so there's no underlying biological, neuropsychological basis for craving, I think that's a good foundational practice. It's very useful in everyday life. It's also very useful for healing everyday suffering. But we need more than that to be truly profoundly equanimous. And that's where insight and understanding really starts coming in, right? Including of the release of taking life personally. The abolition of the conceit, I am, right? We are persons. My body-mind streaming is different from your body-mind streaming. If I start having your thoughts, that's psychotic. <laughs> really. Your karmas are not my karmas. Certainly in this life, and who knows, maybe beyond this life. You know, if your karmas become my karmas, that violates the whole idea of karma. We need to have independent streams, causal streams of causes and effects. So there are distinctions. There is duality in a sense. There is multiplicity at one level. Okay. On the other hand, that notion that there's, an, there's a unified and enduring I inside the head, right, that is the owner of experiences and the agent of actions, well, the Eastern teachings, certainly Buddhism, say that there is no such I. And modern neuroscience says the same thing. You cannot find that I anywhere inside the brain. You can find localization of function for speech comprehension, for speech production, for moving your little finger, for recognizing vertical lines compared to horizontal lines. You can find places in the brain that do that thing. You can't find any place in the brain that does the sense of I. Interesting. So what Buddhism a lot is about, particularly if you take it out really, really all the way, is not taking life personally in a profound sense. 
you know. We treat persons well, persons have responsibilities, persons have moral rights, moral duties, without necessarily getting caught up in taking life personally. As Dogen, great Zen master, writes, you know, to study the way, this is the way of growth, awakening, certainly the Buddhist way, to study the way is to study the sense of self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be illuminated by, to be enlivened by, to be awakened by all things. Isn't that cool? Because as we relax the sense of I, this, this contracted, abstracted, you know, fiction, as we relax that and we open out more into process and the person altogether, the multiplicity altogether, arising and passing away, intertwining with all things, we become lived increasingly by all things. By all things. And as allness, we become increasingly equanimous. Disturbances of equanimity, if you think about it, are based on separating out from allness. But if we have more and more experiences of being kind of coextensive out into allness, this is the deep end of the pool. We can understand it conceptually at first, and then we start experiencing it more and more as we feel we extend increasingly out into allness, as if we are this particular wave, you know, in the Pacific Ocean, but really it's ocean, you know what I mean? Or we feel like we're this particular thread in this great quivering tapestry of life, you know, with ripples moving through us. We start feeling more and more who we are really as the whole tapestry. We get a lot more into that balanced, steady, centered, equanimous place. And there are ways we can do things to help ourselves take things less personally. One, we can look at things more from a bird's eye view, see them in a more impersonal way. Another is to realize, honestly, that when we attribute intentions to others, in which we attribute the intention that they're targeting us personally, most of the time they're not. We're just a bit player in their drama. It's a horrible and wonderful truth. We're not that important to them. <laughs> you know, they've got other things on their mind. We're in the middle of their bad day. And realizing that, ah, you know, it helps us also take things less personally. Um, okay. Buddha has a uh, quote about this. I think I have it here. Yeah. This is um, a description of nirvana. This is a, a description of the end of any kind of suffering and um, sense of, quote, unquote, I, you know, distinct from other things. So the Buddha writes here, for one who clings, motion exists. In other words, uh, but for one who does not cling, there is no motion. In other words, allness remains allness. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming or going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where, there, where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. One way to read or listen to words like this is that it's science fiction, right? It's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, or that's that mystical woo-woo stuff. Another way to read it, though, is to actually try to think about it experientially, to bring it down into our experience. What would that be like? And what would it take to have a mind that's completely still, right? It's not at all agitated, where there's no coming or going. There's just simply stability of presence here and now. And can one imagine or even get a glimmer of that and then help that glimmer increasingly land and sink in. That's a very deep practice. This is the deep end of the pool, all right? Uh, but I thought, how could we possibly have a workshop on equanimity in a Buddhist setting and not talk about this part of it? Which, for a lot of people, I think is really quite real. They have a saying in Tibet, moments of awakening, gradual cultivation. Moments of awakening, gradual cultivation, moments of awakening. We can have intuitions, even just reading a text or having a moment, walking outside and being startled by the stars, where we have a sense that the Buddha is speaking of here. It's a little pearl on the string of our day, and then with practice, we try to get more pearls there 
and less and less space in between them as we gradually cultivate our realization. How do we do this, right, as we move to a wrap today? Um, for me, a fundamental kind of uh, metaphor, and I want to show you this little thing, is this idea that's contained in the Bahia Sutta, which is one of the kind of more well-known suttas in Buddhism. It's really pithy and fundamental, and we can practice with it. The story goes that Bahia was an historical figure in the Buddhist time who himself was quite a developed teacher with a lot of attainments. He heard there was this amazing super-duper teacher who had the real happiness, the real enlightenment, so Bahia traveled some way to find the Buddha. And he encountered the Buddha apparently doing something, maybe coming back from his alms round or he had an errand, whatever. So Bahia comes to the Buddha and says, Noble Sir, please give me your teaching. I've traveled a long way. The Bahia, and the Buddha says, Not now, Bahia. Right? Then Bahia asks a second time, Please, Noble Sir, may I have your teaching? What is the true Dharma that you teach? The Buddha replies a second time, Not now, Bahia. And then the third time, Bahia says, Please, Noble Sir, what is your teaching? And traditionally, if you can get three questions, if you can ask three times, they're supposed to respond. So for me, I imagine this moment of high drama. Uh, I imagine, you know, Jack Nicholson playing the Buddha. You want the truth? Can you handle the truth? Here comes the truth, Bahia. You know, blah, boom. And the Buddha then says, okay, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the scene, let there be only the scene. In the herd, let there be only the herd. Don't add anything to it. Don't add any second darts to it. Don't add self to it. Don't add a lot of story to it. Just let in the scene be the scene, in the herd and the herd, in the felt the felt, in the emoted. Only let there be the emotion. In the thought, let there be only the thought. In the memory of your father, let there be only the memory of your father. You don't need to add anything to it. Train yourself thus. And then when you do this, and we can do this all the time, of just literally the sensations of breathing. Let there be only the sensation of breathing in the breathing. Let there be only the love in the loving, right? When we train ourselves thus, then there's no you there. There's no I there. There's a person there, but there's no quote-unquote self there. There's no ego there. And when there's no you in that, when there's no I in that, there's no I there, because I is constructed. It's invented. We add it to the flow of experience. When there's no you in that, when there's no ego there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. In other words, when there's only the seen and the seen, the felt and the felt, the, the desired and the desired, there's no self. And that, just that, is the end of suffering, according to the Buddha. There may be pain, there may be joy, but there's not agitation around it. There's not suffering wrapped up in it. There are no second, third, and fourth darts. That's a very powerful practice, and it shaped my own meditation uh, in life in general to increasingly let the moment just be what it is while simultaneously letting it stream through the mind, you know, without adding anything to it. Okay. Like I said, deep end of the pool, in our remaining few minutes here, just is there a question or a comment about this stuff? I do a whole day-long workshop on not-self in the brain. I think it's in November or December here. It's a big topic. It's a big topic. But it's wonderful to gradually stop taking things so personally. So if you hang in for the next five minutes, I'll end really close on time. Okay. Yeah. Did you have a question or comment? You had your hand up? I did. Yeah. I wasn't thinking. Yeah. Uh, we, we talked a lot about the brain, the mind, and I wonder, where does consciousness fit in this whole thing? Yeah, in the, so where does awareness or consciousness fit in? In the natural frame that I'm working in, and I think the Buddha worked in too, awareness is, is a natural phenomenon. A squirrel is aware of a nut. You know, somewhere in the chain of animals, if you will, from the simplest little millimeter long 
um, roundworms that have 302 neurons. Not 303, they only have 302. Um, somewhere between them and crabs and lizards and mice and monkeys and people, awareness emerged because it's a very efficient way for animals to track their surroundings. So I think of awareness in the natural frame as a very ordinary phenomenon. And um, who knows, there may be some kind of cosmic consciousness outside the natural frame. But inside the natural frame, fall asleep. You're not so aware. Be anesthetized. I just had a colonoscopy a few days ago. You get the good drugs. You know, they knock you out and they wake you up, right? And, you know, you really, it's a very intimate experience of how awareness is a natural phenomenon. Anyway, okay. Probably too much information for the rest of you. All right, right there in orange ish, peach, my wife's favorite color, okay? Ah, yeah. Uh, I did say that, which is in a, it's one sentence about a day of teaching, in effect, but scans of the brain, of brains of people, who are doing things that seem like very eye-focused, like recognizing your photograph in a group of pictures, or pull up a personal memory, or declare yourself on a controversial moral issue, pick your moral issue, whatever. Um, no particular part of the brain activates. Different parts of the brain activate, and those parts also do other things. So there's no sense of self being at all special in the brain. There are regions that tend to get busy more often than not, but much as experientially, the sense of self comes and goes due to causes, it's impermanent and transient, it's not enduring, and also as much as the sense of self is made up of many parts, in that same way, the neural activities that support the apparent sense of self are also highly transient and invariable and impermanent and compounded, made up of many parts. And it really is a very far out way to appreciate we're persons, there's ongoingness. There's a lot of presumption of I in the flow of consciousness that drives upsets. How dare you treat me that way? I want a cookie, my precious, right? <laughs> a lot of suffering comes out of selfing, you know? Um, and so as we relax that kind of, pos that possessiveness that's selfing, and that process of identification that is selfing, um, and that kind of positionality that is selfing, and increasingly we relax that, opening out into allness, presence, while being nurturing and kind to the person that we are, but without making it special, you know, that's a real path to peace. But then could you say that it's distinctively different than when you do the same exercise with the concept of family? Oh, sure, you could say that as well. A lot of, like family, for example, different parts of the brain will activate, sure. But it's quite, we, it's, it's disturbing to realize that this presumed, unified, enduring ego eye you know, in Western psychology or common culture, you really actually can't find it anywhere in your own experience. It's presumed, but you can't find it. You can't find it in your experience and you can't find it in the brain. Now I want to keep going here, not get sucked into the vortex of emptiness and, you know, this is a heavy-duty topic. But it's, it's worth registering that one of the fundamental sources of equanimity is relaxing into allness, and not taking life so personally. Okay. So I'm going to say one last way into equanimity, which will be our kind of close here, okay? And I really appreciate you sticking here to the sweet end, not the bitter end, the sweet end. Um, one great way to move into equanimity is to extend compassion and kindness to others. You might have noticed that. I mean, one thing I do as like a speaker that has helped me not have stage fright is I'll look at people and I'll see their suffering. Not to be presumptuous, I see my own suffering, but to feel connected to others. And, to, and to, I locate goodwill for people uh, when I you know, do a talk or something like that. And that's, that brings me to equanimity. In other words, to recognize you know, just stress or tension or longing, unmet needs that are my own, you know, that are also in the faces of others. And then that calls up a kind of warm-heartedness in a very natural way 
no special thing about it, we can all do this, but it helps me be equanimous. So for our last minute or so here, let's take some of the value, some of the merit, if you will, of the fruits of practice today. And if you will, inside yourself, just kind of imagine the goodness that you've earned and developed inside yourself today rippling out from you. You might imagine it or you know, waves of kindness or benevolence rippling out to fill the room, rippling out to particular people in your life. like you're centering in lovingness and, if I can, greenness. In other words, you're centered, you're equanimous, a kind of lovely, centered lovingness, rippling out. Noticing what lovingness does for you probably kind of brings you home. May all beings be truly happy. Thank you. And my last slide. This is the workshop in a nutshell. Drop by drop, minute by minute, good experience by good experience, the water pot is gradually filled. So may all the water pots of all beings everywhere be filled. So thanks so much. Thanks for putting up with me leaving quickly. Great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.